you, do you like the feeling of power you have as a newspaper proprietor of being able to sort of formulate policies for a large number of newspapers in every state of Australia? Well, there's only one honest answer to that, of course, and that's yes. Of course one enjoys the feeling of power. The newspaper can create great controversies, stir up uh, arguments within the community, discussion, it can throw light on injustices, just as it can do the opposite. It can hide things uh, and be a great power for evil. It's not a perfect system, obviously, but can you think of a better one? Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Murdocracy, a podcast that keeps an eye on the news and influence of News Corp, the most influential media company in the Western world. Ha, ah, there we go. We're in double digits now. Uh, I'm Cam Wilson. And I'm Sammy Shaw. Hey, Sammy, have you told any lies? this week oh wow that's um I'm, I'm not known for lying i think i've never told any lies at all in the history of my life and lying <laughs> i just really i believe in our lord and savior jesus christ and he always told me never to lie so i speak in tongues sometimes i don't know what i'm saying when i speak in tongues but exactly. um <laughs> and no one can really decipher that but maybe that's lies but i doubt it you know who who would lie about speaking in tongues of course, of course. And, you know, the thing is, is I never lie. I always mean what I say in the heat of the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, at that exact moment, that's exactly what I believe. Will I believe it in the future? Did I believe in the past? Well, that's not really important. It's all about the here and now, right. living in the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, life is all about the copy DM and I'm copying the DM out of it. <laughs> I thought this week the culmination of COP26, Scott Morrison's net zero Plan, which turned out to be not zero mm-hmm, as it was revealed mm-hmm. by the modeling that came out on Friday. There's still a bunch of it which needs to be figured out. And in all of that, that we've actually kind of entered into a new stage of Scott Morrison's prime ministership where it seems like people are a lot more willing just to call him a liar. And I actually think that, you know, we, we don't know what's going to happen next election. It's going to happen next year sometime. And, you know, a lot can happen between now and then. But I do think that if he loses we will look back at this month of october specifically and be like that was actually a turning point well i mean there was a moment if you remember in the 2016 u.s presidential election you know where um it was called uh, the post-truth era like i think it can enter it was the word of the year in the dictionary i remember in 2016 the post-truth because the idea being that truth is all relativistic now and and everything we have uh, as what is reality is purely down to personal interpretation of reality and all that stuff. And I think Scott Morrison's been trying to implement that same kind of philosophical approach to um, to fact, facts and fact-checking in Australia and found that maybe Australians aren't as on board with the post-truth era as their American counterparts, perhaps. I think one of the big things is that we're probably more prepared for it. And, you know, we saw the news media industry go under a lot of transformation Mm. and and changes in what they believed in the philosophy because of the the era that was ushered in by Trump and his consistent lying. We're seeing seeing Morrison lie more. You know, this is something that at my, my current workplace, Crikey, we did a bit about and now a lot of other people are kind of, I think, getting on board as well. I think that he's feeling under pressure and that pressure is leading him to kind of lie more and lean more into this kind of crass, like, you know, I never said anything bad about electric vehicles. I'm not, you know, you can quote it back to me, but that's, that's not what I said, or I don't believe that I was being rude about it. Mm -hmm. I, I think that we're better prepared for that, but I also know as well that like, you know, when, when we saw the coverage of this 
electric vehicle saga. And, and I think all the media pointed out that this was a big backflip. So, you know, they, they were straight away calling it out because in 2019, yes. he said there's a war on the weekend, which was obviously ridiculous, but it was repeated by, you know, uh, sections of the media, including like, you know, News Corp. We're seeing them be more critical. But then like literally the next day, they came out, the government came out with this policy about uh, uh, emissions. It was a, a climate change policy that was that was reported as being like a billion dollar fund. But the second line of the media release about it was that ah, actually it's only $500 million that we're putting in and $500 million that other people will put in your know, business will co-invest, which was, you know, uncritically reported as a billion dollars. And, you know, at the end of the day, like I, we don't have to get too much in the details of it. The point was that even though, you know, I feel like the media wanted to make up for the mistakes that had made in the past, because it was pretty embarrassing that people repeated the war on the reef mm-hmm. weekend thing. They were just like all too willing or, or I guess unaware of the fact that they just made a similar mistake again. I, do you think that we're learning the lesson? <laughs> oh, this is, this goes all the way back now to, we're talking about Chomsky's manufactured manufacturing consent series, you know, where it's basically the same mistakes being made again and again and again by media because media thinks in short-term cycles and so can only practice correction in short-term cycles, you know. Um, I don't think we're learning lessons. I think we're going to find out about all the lessons we have learned and whether those lessons have been effective in the next election, which I think the announcement should be soon. Um, All right, let's do this. When the elections are announced, let's you and I make some predictions as to how the media will cover the run-up to the elections. And then let's see if we can create a bingo around that for our listeners to play along with. All right? Absolutely. And look, look, Sammy, if there's one thing I love doing as a card-carrying member of the the media class... The media elite. I I love manufacturing consent. I do it all day long. I do it in my, I'm paid to do it. I do it in my spare time as well. You know, it's it's so much fun, you know, convincing the masses to believe the elites. (laughs) So speaking of the media, we are speaking this week to, I would say one of the keenest observers of Australia's media industry. Tim Burrows, he is the founder of Mumbrella. He has just written a book um, called The Media Unmade about the 2010s and all the disruption that happened. And especially he talks a lot about News Corp and Lachlan Murdoch, who seems like he's in a pretty good position to take over the whole thing, had some very interesting sagas in Australian media during the 2010s. So we're chatting to him about that. But before we get into some of our stuff, I also want to say that uh, we have a bunch of new Patreon subscribers uh, who are supporting what we do, and we're very grateful That's to That's so them. lovely. Thank you so much for your patronage. It, it means the world to us, and it allows us to do this. Exactly. So thank you to Nick, to Alex, to Ned and Louise. We're very grateful. If you want to support what we do, you can uh, go onto our Patreon, which is p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash murdocracy, M-U-R-D-O-C-R-A-C-Y. And uh, yeah, support what we do because, I mean, we really love doing it. And uh, if you if we can um, get support, we can expand what we're doing and, and be able to put more time into it and to make it really good for you. Yep, thank you very much. So for our News Corp News of the Week, our first story is that News Corp Australia posted a $60 million loss on $1.4 billion of revenue last year, according to documents filed with ASIC. Their earnings were actually down $60 million from the year before, 
Um, but their money from circulation and subscription, which is essentially the money you're getting direct from people who are readers and, and consuming your content, was up nearly 20% to more than $600 million. Sammy, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, hang on, haven't we just spent the last few weeks talking about how much money that News Corp is making internationally? How is it possible that, that they are also losing in Australia? Mm-hmm. Well, the reason is that, well, I mean, the first reason is that this is an insight into their Australian operations, but also, you know, with the way that their structure works, you know, this isn't really the full picture. The full picture is what we get from those international um, filings. This kind of gives us a bit more, uh, you know, insight into some more of the details. But what I thought was really interesting was that for the first time, they are now earning more money directly from their subscribers. So that's people mm-hmm. who are paying for their content or paying for, you know, to buy, a, you know, they're either subscribing or they're picking up a newspaper. They're getting more than from there than they are from advertising, which means that, you know, you're seeing this balance shift from being like, well, we care about the people who are putting their stuff in our, you know, in between our content to now we need to create that direct relationship with the audience. What do you think? Well, I mean, it, that's been the big interesting challenge to newspapers and, and news outlets and news media since the, you know, since the tech boom, really, since the late 90s and early 2000s, where they're trying to balance that uh, challenge, trying to balance the losses from advertising revenue that they've incurred with an increase in subscriptions. And no one's really done it successfully to date. We've seen a lot of people, everyone from the New York Times on down, uh, struggling to see the subscriber numbers match their advertising revenue. Newscope seems to have figured that out. My my suspicion is it's largely down to the fact that unsubscribing from Newscope is such a nightmarish hellscape that people would much rather just leave the subscription running until they die than actually <laughs> go through the entire process of calling someone up and begging them to cancel their credit cards. Um, but, you know, look, it's it's also that thing of um, how they structure the financials. And, you know, we shouldn't feel too bad about the losses they're making, because as you mentioned, they did make a huge profit ab- uh, abroad and, and internationally overall. And um, and I'm sure this is one of those things which is, you know, I'm not making an accusation here. I'm just wondering out loud if this is similar to how every Hollywood studio somehow makes a loss on every movie um, when it comes tax time. Yeah, poor Rupert isn't on the breadline anytime soon, so he's, he's not going to be going around. Well, he will be going around and hand, hand, with his cap in hand, but, you know, he's, he's he's doing okay. He won't have to set up a Patreon, is what you're saying? Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah he, he probably should anyway. Yeah. You know, there's, I hear there's great money in that. Um, hey, speaking of uh, of unsubscribing, friends, we want to call them friends of the pod, The Chaser, actually offer a great service that if you go to them and you put in your details, they will actually unsubscribe to news mm-hmm. for you they will do the hard yards and so you know we appreciate anyone who who helps out people like that so if you are somehow stuck on there you can't be bothered waiting on hold during office hours they'll help you out uh, sammy can i also ask mm-hmm. just out of curiosity what generally are you subscribed to what what publication um so i've got a subscription to the australian i've got a subscription to the saturday paper i've got a subscription to the age so those are the three papers oh and the new york times um and then in this in the streaming services it's just a bananas shit show in my life i have foxtel i have netflix i have stan i have binge i have um what's it called uh, uh disney plus 
So all of those are basically bleeding me dry. The thing is, I need all these for work. I really genuinely do. I work in a variety of fields and I need them all for work. But the end result has been that I'm just hemorrhaging money all the time. That's uh, if the uh, tax office is listening. Yes. That, that's why we need to be able to claim them as deductions. <laughs> what about yourself? <laughs> I am subscribed to a bunch of those newspapers as mm-hmm. well, to the Sydney Morning Herald, to a few others. And I, I also have quite a few individual subscriptions to uh, good writers who are doing things through Substack and Patreon, particularly people over in the, in the US who are doing um, writing about the internet, which is what I'm particularly interested in. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, you know, we, we are moving to a model where you can directly support people, including Medocracy, Medocracy, or, or patreon.com slash Medocracy uh, to do good things. And they don't need to be supported by a full news operation anymore. Uh, but ge- just generally, you know, News Corp it was at the front of convincing people that they shouldn't just get content for free, they should pay for good content. And they are reaping the benefits of that. So the second story that I have is that New South Wales Journalism held its awards night this week called the Kennedys. And one of the awards given out raised at least a few eyebrows. Sky News After Dark host Peter Credlin beat out a star-studded field to win the award for outstanding long-form current affairs for her Sky News investigation, Deadly Decisions, Victoria's Hotel Quarantine Catastrophe. The Guardian's Amanda Mead wrote, Given Credlin's well-known animosity to Victoria's pandemic response and lockdown measures, editor's note on my note, because of course she was the chief of staff to former Prime Mm. Minister Tony Abbott, Many saw the story as an agenda-driven partisan attack on the Victorian Premier, Dan Andrews. Sammy, what do you think? Was it well-deserved for this piece of investigative journalism finally calling Dictator Dan to account? Well, I mean, look, previously Peter Credlin won the, uh, what is it, the Office of the Order of Australia, one of the Queen's birthday honours, and is the second highest rank in the honour system as well. So um, clearly the people who like her really like the work she's doing. Um, it's kind of weird to give an award to someone who at the same time that they reported on the hotel quarantine system also had to issue an apology to the entire South Sudanese community for mislabeling them as being the cause of the COVID-19 spread. Um, yeah, a bit of a boo-boo there. Yeah, so, but, you know, there's so many of these awards are just, uh, you know, sometimes they tend to be things for time served. They tend to be, you know, uh, just a, a pat on the back for uh, doing the hard yards and, and, and just turning up to your job every day on time. Journalists have a very low threshold for competence and, and this seems to be one of the things Things where we're just giving this these awards to each other just to be able to say, good job, you didn't vomit all over yourself this week. Well, they are the uh, Bogan Walkleys, as was uh, <laughs> for those people who don't get the reference. Um, Michael Rodden, who writes for the Australian Financial Review, won an award, and in his speech, he referred to the Kennedys as the Bogan Walkleys. He was then ushered off the stage. They turned the spotlight off and then they deleted the tweet from the website announcing his award. And then they also, the list of winners they sent out that night didn't have him on it as well. That is remarkably thin-skinned though. uh, Incredibly thin-skinned from the industry. I do think though, you actually raise a, a very insightful point, which is that in the media industry, we tend to hold up certain people or certain types of media 
as like award winning. Mm-hmm. And, and one of those is this idea of doing long form video journalism. And, and of course, that is what this award was specifically for. But the funny thing about these awards is that these opportunities to do long form journalism reporting is not given to most people. There are a lot of journalists out there who have not been afforded the same benefits given to Peter Credlin at Sky News, where, you know, as soon as she got into media, she was given a great gig and and clearly a lot of uh, a leash by her company to produce something like this. So really, you know, you are competing against actually quite a small field of people. And I guess, you know, like, that's kind of how these awards work. You know, they give something to people for long form journalism who are already kind of, I guess, like the elite in the elite of the industry. And then that award kind of reaffirms their status. And I guess the thing is, if these opportunities were given to more journalists, you know, if, if a lot of people out there, you know, think about the country paper journalists who've been spending mm-hmm. you know, years and years slaving away, might have a great story they want to write about. Or think about the other journalists at major publications who are just kind of came in the ground floor, you know, weren't the chief of staff to a former prime minister and so didn't get a gig like this. They may also be able to produce high level stuff, but they're excluded from this because they didn't come in at this level and so could never win an award like this. Well, it goes down to that uh... A Groucho Marx quote, right? Um, where he said, I refuse to join any club that would have me as a member. And I guess I'd say the same thing over here. You know, a self respecting journalist should refuse to take an award from any organization that would give them one, particularly an, or- <laughs> an organization like the Kennedys here. Uh, but if you're listening, I'll absolutely <laughs> please vote for me next year. Is it voting? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea how they actually tabulate these. So I missed this late last month, but I thought it's worth noting that the Australian marked a decade. 10 years of having a paywall. They were the first Australian major news company to put their content behind a wall on their website only for subscribers, according to the Australian's media editor, James Madden. I mention this because, you know, we live in a world now where paywalls are everywhere, um, but at the time it was a really foreign idea. And as it turns out on this one, News Corp was really right. Mm -hmm. You know, they stubbornly led the way on telling people that their content is going to be paid for online. You know, in the early part of this decade or, or, or of the 2010s or even, um, you know, the, the decade before towards the end of it, the internet had exploded, people were using it, a lot of people were getting their news online, but no one had really cracked at how to get people to pay for it. You know, they were doing ad-supported stuff, which has turned out to be a pretty flawed business model. They really did lead the way. And, I mean, the proof is in the pudding. You know, almost everyone is doing paywalls now. Um, I think that this is actually something that in an incredible way is actually an achievement of the company. And, you know, you can obviously say it's self-serving, but I think it's also shown that people, you know, it's about creating the culture that people should pay for content. And by doing that, you know, it is, I think, given a, a bit of a life raft to the industry, don't you think? Absolutely. It's been, they they were able to ride out that, that change in human thinking. You know, we went from a time where you paid for things you like to a time when, you know, in the advent of the internet and everything, where we all developed the attitude of if it's worth having, I should have it for free. Um, you know, which is where you saw piracy and Kazaa and Napster and all these things kind of coming around and, and newspapers just giving away their content for free as well. And Newscope in this situation just basically said, no, if our work is worth paying for, and if you want it, you have to pay for it. And 
people eventually did come around to that. Now we're in the golden era, it seems, of people being happy to pay for content that they enjoy, whether that be to the individual or to the organization. And, um, you know, kudos to them for sticking it out because it, it, many people blinked in the face of the hurricane. So um, they them not doing so, it required a certain amount of, obviously, financial fortitude which they have the ability to do but also just overall there must have been internal pressure as well to get rid of the paywall that they ignored there was a part in the article that i thought was pretty interesting 59 percent of the digital subscribers to the australian in 2011 were the over 55 male executive category whoa Mm -hmm. but today the subscriber base is more reflective this is according to james madden the australians media uh writer but you know we'll take it with a grain of salt but with 32 percent of readers aged over 55 so that's Mm -hmm. halved what it was before and 30 percent under 35 that surprised me that is interesting i wonder how much of that is down to the weekend australian because they do a really good job with that magazine it, it, it just um has a really good arts coverage and i wonder how much of that comes from there and how much of that comes from just you know overall the rise that we've seen in um people critical of uh, liberal politics or leftist politics rather um in you know with the young cohort on social media and youtube and stuff and the australian kind of catering to that voice yeah, owning the left by subscribing to the Australians yes. <laughs> may be a natural strategy. Uh, and final one for this week, Sammy. And I know you've been waiting so long for this, So, but if you could just like hold your excitement. All right, bring it. News Corp is looking to start uh, or is about to start mm-hmm. a new platform mm-hmm. purely for long-form sports writing. Oh. Now this is <laughs> <laughs> that didn't go where I thought you, it would go. <laughs> you, you did a you did a great job of holding your excitement. Um, lifting from the Athletic, which is an international sports only publication that's um you know really blown up in the last few years. Zoe Samias from Nine Papers reports that this new publication called The Code is expected to launch next week and will be separate from their existing sports reporting. It's going to have a lot of um, you know in-depth articles about Australian stars, both in Australia, but Australian stars also overseas. Sammy, uh, this is probably a stupid question, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm assuming you're going to sign up for it, right? Oh, that's a given. Absolutely. Let me give you my relationship with sports. Uh, <laughs> Pakistan and Australia apparently fought against each other in the T20 World Cup a couple of days ago. I had no idea. I woke up in the morning to find hundreds of text messages from my family and friends in Pakistan cursing me out for being an Australian. Um, (laughs) I had to go online to look at exactly what they were angry about so that Australia beat Pakistan in the match. Um, And then I went online and claimed that I love Australia so much and Pakistanis should learn how to play cricket better if they care about the sport Um, while not really giving a damn, not not knowing a single member of either team that I could name off the top of my head. So, yeah, it's purely for owning the libs is why I love the sport. <laughs> totally, totally. When it, when it suits me, I'll pay attention to it. I love being a winner, but when I'm not now... So do you, sub- do you yeah. barrack for a uh, footy team? Uh, I kind of support the, the greater Western Sydney Giants in the AFL. I'm not really an NRL guy, okay. uh, but I, I've, I've gotten a lot into basketball, but international basketball, right. so the, the, and the NBA. Oh, yeah, I've um, noticed that on your Twitter feed. It's very strange. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's it's got actually. Do you know? You know, like I think you know m- most modern sports coverage is really kind of soap opera kind of 
stuff. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's knowing the ins and outs of what's happening in the players' lives. It very much is kind of like gossip mags for men. Now, I know that's kind of being stereotypical, but it, but it totally is. And like, you know, you often you'll see traditional guys being like, oh, I don't really care about celebrity goss. But then they'll be talking about, oh, like Kyrie Irving hasn't got his vaccine. And I wonder what's going to happen. And did you see that Ben Simmons broke up with, uh, you know, whoever? So I, 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 I quite enjoy the NBA. I think it's, it's great content. You barely even, you know, in fact, the modern sports product is, so much that they've gotten it so good you know the whole ecosystem of highlights of of people aggregating and sharing clips on social media you can be an nba fan and not actually watch any nba that's how good they are about it it's become so distant actually from the product itself will i be signing up for code probably not but i guess you know the whole point of with these things is just expanding the amount that your existing customers are, 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 I think are paying. And so you've got, you know, KO, people are already paying a certain amount from that. And then they'll be like, well, you know, I know that they can, you know, News Corp can advertise to their subscriber base who already exists, who they have there, who know love sport, mm-hmm. who they know will shell out for it. And they can be like, oh, you really want to read this article with, uh, you know, new NBA player from Australia, Josh Giddy. It's a great article, long read. No one else has it, but you got to show out another ten dollars a month, and a lot of them will just say, "Oh, yeah, easy." It's about you know, you can you know, in business, you can either find your audiences or you can expand the ones that you currently have into paying for more. To me, this is a play at getting more money from their existing customers. Yes. And it's time for good news corp, bad news corp. Although this week, I think I might uh, have only two good news corps. Uh, not, that, not to say that there wasn't Ooh. any bad news corp. I'm sure there was, but there's two good news corp stories I wanted to share. I thought, you know. I... We're feeling positive this week. That's right. Um, the first good news corp story is, of course, congratulations, a massive congratulations to Samantha Maiden, um, a journalist for News Corp Australia, who was awarded the $25,000 Bogan Walkley Prize for Journalist of the Year. And she also took home awards for outstanding investigative journalism the rebecca wilson award for scoop of the year and outstanding political reporting um so that's that's quite a few awards for uh, one person representing news corp in the award ceremony good so well done samantha sam maiden is a, a journalist who i'm you know i'm very jealous of I'm, mm-hmm. I'm i'm professionally jealous all the time i think that i think that's the way with a lot of journalists i'm i'm I, I'm just constantly jealous of other people's great work, and 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 her award. I'm not jealous of her because of the award. I'm jealous of her because of her incredible yes. reporting. And so, congratulations, Sam. I wish I had your skills. Richly <laughs> deserved, absolutely. Um, the other award, the other story, rather that I have found a lot of inspiration from is, and this is on news.com.au. Um, I was furiously looking through the website for a bad news corp example, and I was like, this is too good to pass up. It is a good news corp story as well, and it is by Natalie Brown. Uh, journalists writing for their lifestyle segment and it says uh, Aldi selling cult favorite lobster tails for $29 now scam I ask you have you had the lobster tails from Aldi I have not and this will be controversial (laughs) for a a a media elite from my my left ivory tower Mm -hmm. where I'm sipping lattes Mm -hmm. and eating quinoa lobsters not really a fan look 
I, I get it. I know a lot of people who have slowly come around to the realization that lobsters used to be prison food for a reason back in mm. 17th century France, and maybe they need to be turned back to that. But I will make an argument for the Aldi lobster tail because it's, um, look, I've had it more than once, all right? It's got garlic butter glaze. It's, um, it's you know, it's got, Ooh, re- it's got really nice kind of seasoning with butter, garlic, lemon juice, parsley, and salt, and, um, you also can combine that with if you really want to feel gluttonous the goose fat crispy roasting potatoes from aldi all of this by the way is on their news story the new entire news story is just an ad for aldi but as a fan of aldi's frozen food section this is news that i needed i don't care about (laughs) you know so many of the let's go let's go to the front page of news.com okay i don't care that peter hellier has covid couldn't give a shit, really. I don't care about Paris Hilton's lavish three-day wedding, nor do I care about um, <laughs> an ex-army worker's incredible transformation or Megan's three-word dig at the Queen. What I care about is that the lobster tails are back at Aldi, and News Corp just told me that. So thank you, news.com.au. Peter, hell yeah, get, get, get well, well soon. soon. <laughs> uh, and, and I guess kind of ironically, this has turned into an ad for Aldi as well. Yes, so thank you for the bit of, bit of spawn cot. Hey, I actually do have a late mm. recommendation or nomination for bad news. All right, board. bring it. Sammy, did you see this week that Pauline Hansen oh. debuted some political cartoons? That were meant to be satire. Did you see So those? I saw them on social media in excerpts. I didn't see the whole thing, but I saw excerpts on social media. And I thought they were parodies of someone trying to make political cartoons, not realizing that they were sincerely that bad. Can you please describe them? So they are in a South Park style, which is how they're sold. Apparently, they're releasing 20 two-minute episodes i've they've released two so far and what they are is they have pauline hansen as this kind of patient reasonable teacher who's overseeing a classroom of australian politicians who are all in some ways uh you know kind of caricatures and represented as kind of negative so scomo is a kind of like bogan dickhead uh elbow is a kind of rat um peter dunn is actually i think this is very funny is portrayed as voldemort which is quite good (laughs) and 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 i think it's um you know like it it was written to appeal to a that they said this is for a youth audience um and, and i'm kind of skeptical whether it will appeal to that because i think you have to be already pretty politically engaged to actually make sense of all the characters like they have like some bits of it are actually you know you hate to say it but are quite funny other parts are not so great like there's a gay joke between like a kind of gross Mm -hmm. one between uh albo and adam band and other stuff like that like i mean this is not like uh you know I, i hate to give it to her but actually this is very funny I also think that it portrays Pauline Hansen as much more, you know, reasonable and cogent than she actually is, which is probably to her benefit as well. So that means in inter- satire, a satirical version of Pauline Hansen is more reasonable and cogent than the real <laughs> version of Pauline yeah, Hansen. Yeah, yeah. When you put it like that, I think I think that is actually quite funny. Um, the reason that it's in this category is Rita Panahi, who is a columnist for News Corp, is a host on Sky News Australia. She thought it's genuinely funny. I think that's probably a little bit too uh beneficial or a bit of, a little bit too uh, sorry i think that probably gives a little bit 
much too much credit mm-hmm. to the video. Uh, Corey Bernardi, another Sky News host, said, I'm liking this. Uh, this is some uh, a promotion set up by Pauline Hansen about people who have vouched for it. I uh, Look, I, my take on it is that there was a lot of people in a tizzy being like, oh, my God. Is this gonna is this gonna convince or what, these young people to vote for Pauline Hanson? Mm-hmm. I actually think because it's it relies so much on on or on on like political know how that anyone who doesn't already know that who isn't already engaged voter and if they are an engaged voter they already have an opinion on Pauline. If if they don't like they probably aren't gonna get it and I think that's it, it's kind of shown it's done well on Facebook but not but you know crazy better than her other stuff. Uh, has it's actually kind of bombed on TikTok because. I think it actually appeals to boomers more than anything else. Well, that's the thing. It, it does it. That's my question to you. I suppose, you know, having seen it in greater detail than I have, do, do you think it'll go off with the intended audience? I think so. I think that like a lot of the people sharing it have been people who are not going to vote for Pauline Hanson, but being like, oh, I, you know, bits of this are funny or like, or even the kind of alarm shares. I think like, you know, particularly people who is like, I think there's a lot of people on the left mm. who live in constant fear that like, you know, people on the right are, are kind of smarter and savvier uh, politicians or, or more cutthroat or whatever than the left and doing something like this. Oh, you know, it's going to work. I think if, you know, for instance, the Labour or the Greens put this out, people will be like, this is like really cringe. Mm-hmm. I think they kind of get the benefit of the doubt that they're like, you know, like, oh, they're smart and, and they figure this all out. I don't really think anyone's going to change their mind. We'll see. There's 20 videos in total, but I think from the kind of, um, you know, the metrics that they set up, you know, the kind of goals that they set, which is this is going to appeal to young people. I've mostly seen it like shared by older people. It didn't go well on TikTok as well. I don't think we need to worry about a whole generation of young people being pilled by Pauline Hanson into voting for One Nation. Yet, yet. She still hasn't cracked the formula, but she's clearly got brains working on it. Uh, yeah, it seems like she might have, might have, might have won the support of Rita Panahi, who says. So that is the bad Youth news. Youth influencer Rita Panahi. Yeah. <laughs> Tim Burroughs founded Mumbrella, one of Australia's major media publications in 2008. And over the next decade, he saw an incredible time of change, you know, morphing and growing in the Australian media scene, uh, including the continued dominance of News Corp. Earlier this year, he published Media Unmade, Australia's most disruptive decade, great name, and now writes a very insightful newsletter under a similar name, Unmade. Uh, he joins us now to talk, uh, you know, to break down a, a few of the questions that we've got about News Corp financials, and to give us some insight into what News Corp was like and the and the Murdochs over that decade. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Hey Cam, hey Sammy, thank you so much for the invitation. <laughs> First of all, I want to ask you know, pick your brain because you're you're probably the best person to ask this. You know, we've talked a, a bit about how News Corp international has been really going gangbusters financially over the last year things are looking very good but then this week we got a uh, rare insight into news corp australia's finances because they um they filed some papers with asic that said that they had been suffering i think it was a 60 million dollar loss over the last year that was actually down from the year before of course a lot of COVID expenses I guess I wanted to understand, place that in context. Is this just as simple as the Australian arm being a loss maker for News Corp International? Or is there something a bit more complicated going on here? I think I would lean towards the second, which is News Corp has always been a complicated organisation structurally. And 
probably more so now than ever in the you know broadly it's an organization which uh which looks towards the US the UK and Australia uh particularly when it comes to you know its kind of news operations but also increasingly its financial fortunes depend on more than just its news masthead so book publishing uh real estate and that particularly means the kind of digital real estate side of things uh what it calls its dow jones unit which is kind of wall street journal plus financial information um and then of course news media so there are there are there, there are different speeds there and then alongside that particularly in australia is the division that it calls subscription video services, but we would think of as the the Foxtel group. So the kind of subscription broadcast sort of old school Foxtel and then the video streaming services alongside it. And they, they, they all contribute to the picture. And of course they all tend to react differently to what's going on in, in the economy and all tend to move at a different speed. So, so it's always really hard to, to, to any given time, have a full picture about just how the organization is traveling. One of the things that a lot of people have reported around this job loss, so the or the earnings losses that uh, News Corp, you know, kind of posted, is that well, it's because of the pandemic. But you know, when you look at the thing, viewership numbers seem to have gone up during the pandemic. The, the, the social media numbers definitely went up during the pandemic. We know digital subscriptions have gone up during the pandemic. How the, does that turn into a loss when it seems, by all metrics, that they're doing better right now? Is this one of those situations where, like you know, in Hollywood, every movie makes a loss so they don't have to pay taxes? A few, a few things went on kind of during the, the 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 pandemic and over the last 18 months or so, of which the biggest single impact was News Corp shutting a lot of its um, community and local newspapers. Um, now, that was clearly in response to what they saw as the, you know, the health of that division. Some of them went digital only, others went away altogether. Um, and... That was really down to two things. It was um, a real fall off in advertising. Now, some of that is just because advertising has tended to move away from newspapers generally, and some of it was accelerated by the effects of uh, of, of of the kind of COVID downturn, which just hurt newspapers generally. You know, not just the news court papers, but uh, out west, um, the Seven West media newspapers, and then. Of course, um, the, the the former Fairfax papers now owned by Nine, so that was a major factor, you know. That, and that there is that irony, you know. There might be an appetite for news, but that doesn't automatically mean that you know that it is it is as profitable if the advertisers aren't there. And then, of course, what you're relying on is um, subscription revenue, and you know, in in in, in fairness, fairness to News Corp over the last decade or so it's done a good job better than many people expected in beginning to put on paying digital subscribers, but it's a slog, you know, and it, it, it feels that the public are generally harder to persuade to sign up for new subscriptions than they are for video streaming subscriptions, for instance. One thing that I have been, um, you know, I've noticed is that News Corp traditionally has for a long time been the one saying, we will get you to pay for our digital content. This, you know, at the start of the decade in particular, uh, news companies were really starting to be like, okay, there's a lot of stuff happening on digital, but, you know, how are we going to make money off it? And, you know, for a long time, I think the impulse was to make things free and to try figure out 
other ways of making money through things like advertising. But News Corp really has for a long time kind of stood steadfast in its commitment to being like, you guys are going to pay for it. And that kind of came with the paywall, which the Australian recently uh, celebrated, which is a funny term, I guess, but celebrated 10 years of having a paywall. And they said that they were uh, the first in Australia. And then, of course, the, the 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 recently, I guess, resolved fight between Google, Facebook and Australian media companies with the news media bargaining code, where, you know, they got the uh, tech giants to cough up to have their content on the platform, something that people for a long time said was kind of a, um, I, I guess, a, a kind of a folly. What do you think that that says about the strength of News Corp as a company and their ability to, I guess, uh, I guess, draw, you know, make people pay for things? Look, strength of will comes into it. It really does because, you know, as as, as you allude to there, when maybe a dozen years or even a little bit more ago, Rupert Murdoch first began to talk about people paying for digital content and first began to talk about the the digital platforms effectively needing to pay for the right to link they those were both quite out there ideas at the time you know it was no certainty that it would would work and and yet it has you know particularly i think on the on on the the kind of the broadsheet side of things so you know there were there, there were some numbers when the news corp's annual report came out about a fortnight or so ago the the Australian now up to almost a quarter of a million paying subscribers, which is a really impressive number, you know, and it's pretty significant, yeah. You know, the the the, the number's not quite as big when it comes to the kind of the tabloids. So, the, you know, the Telegraph in Sydney, the Herald Sun in, in in Melbourne, the Courier Mail, all had very similar numbers of just about just just under one hundred and fifty thousand each, and then the Advertiser in Adelaide a bit a, a, a bit lower again. But not insignificant numbers, and they they absolutely played into that theme that um, for 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 news mastheads to kind of survive in the new world, the new digital world, it would absolutely have to be about subscribers paying first, and then some advertising rather than the other the other way round. So so that was definitely one part of it, and then the other, as you say, was this going after the the digital platforms and asking them to you know effectively pay to be in that space was again you know a a, a triumph not just of making the argument but the influence because of course it took the ACCC and the direction of um, Scott Morrison's government to make it happen to the benefit of the big traditional media owners in Australia and I, I rather suspect that an awful lot of that was the the influence that News Corp holds politically that made that a kind of palatable thing for the government to do. How successful has this whole uh, you know shift to subscription first, advertiser second been in other parts of the world? In America, for example, is this a thing that um, you know News Corp can 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 copy the American model in, in Australia and see it as just as profitable? Or does Australia have different metrics when it comes to just overall subscription advertising and therefore, you know, market earnings? 
Look, I, I think in, in, in fairness to News Corp, it's probably been one of the global leaders, certainly when the Australian jumped a decade ago. So, you know, there, there would be a handful of examples people use from around the world of, of that sort of subscriber or user pay. So people talk a lot about the uh, the New York Times, for instance. So that's globally is probably the best example. And then, you know, when you look at other examples, you... You know, you you might talk about the success of the the Guardian for persuading readers to pay, but it's it's a slightly more philanthropic model in that they're they're asked to do it kind of out of the goodness of their hearts, I suppose, to support that sort of journalism rather than that straight transaction of if you want to read it, you've got to pay for it. So you know, I you know, I I, I actually think that um, when it comes to subscription marketing is probably more often than not that other markets are looking towards what News Corp has done in Australia rather than the other way around. Getting people, world leaders and getting people to cough up. I love that. <laughs> now, um, Tim, I want to ask you about, let's kind of turn to what you cover in your book. And can you just first give me a, a kind of like an overview of what happened to News Corp during the 2010s? Yeah, it, it was... I would say probably the most challenging time of all for the organisation, not not just here in Australia, but globally. So you sort of started the decade with um, with Lachlan Murdoch being on the outer. He'd sort of surprised everyone from walking away and was doing his own thing. So he um, he then kind of came back to Australia and eventually ended up buying um, what's now the Nova Entertainment Radio Network from from, from DMG and making a big success of it, you know. So that that's become something quite profitable for him in his own right, but also much less successfully investing in uh, Network 10 alongside James Packer and eventually losing their entire stake on that one after they, they misplayed their hands and the, the organisation fell into the hands of, um, of what's now Viacom CBS instead. Um, but you then saw sort of Lachlan come back within the fold. Um, in the meantime, things have changed an awful lot. You know, we've gone from John Hardigan at the helm to a very brief and tumultuous time where Kim Williams ran the organisation and he came in with this brief to really get it ready for digital disruption and, and you know, remake the internal structures and ended up really going to war with the editors as a result. Um, and and in the end, Rupert Murdoch backed the editors rather than Williams. Um, so there was all of that sort of tumult going on. At the same time, you had the uh, in Australia the scandal over Melbourne Storm uh, and the... the, 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 the that there was really questionable behaviour over the uh, salary caps. And at the time, of course, News Corp was the owner of Melbourne Storm. So that sort of played into their NRL ambitions, which are really important on the Foxtel side of things. And then um, you had other local difficulties like um, Bruce Guthrie, former editor of the Herald Sun, successfully suing over his dismissal. And then perhaps the biggest blow of all globally and it you know and it did feed into the kind of the I, I guess the the mojo of the organization in Australia as well was the phone ha- hacking scandal with the news of the world which uh you know Rupert Murdoch eventually took the decision to close uh to save wider ambitions for the company but it was a a huge humiliation and a you know a sign of 
I, I guess that there there were weaknesses within News Corp as well. So, so it, it, if you look back a decade, there was a real moment where it felt that uh, that News Corp was not the organisation that it once was, and that Rupert Murdoch was not the leader that he'd once been. So what happens there from, you know, what you're describing is a institution that is on the downward turn, is is losing its cultural impact to where we are today, which is basically seeing it as, you know, as many people describe it, the most influential news media organization in the world, or at least the Western world. Yeah, and, and a number of things. I suppose a key thing is it just stuck at it and slugged it out, which is something that that Rupert Murdoch often has done over the years. So it doggedly went about its business, which some of it was remaking business structures and just beginning to sort of, I guess, to that kind of level of acceptance that being a media owner was not going to be as straightforwardly profitable and as easily profitable as it once was, that running newspapers was just going to get harder because the model had changed. There wasn't as much kind of um, classified advertising money for one thing coming in. So that that was a part of it. So there's, there, there has been this story of just a, a constant sort of dogged remaking of the business model. And some of that, of course, means that there are a lot fewer staff there as a result. So, so you know, back in 2012, it wasn't announced at the time, but it was it was a significant number of um, staff who had to leave the organisation. It was about one in ten at the time. So about the same time that uh, uh, Fairfax were making 1,900 people redundant, News Corp was making about 1,600 people redundant. So it was, you know, it was a it, it was a really big number. And then, of course, we saw the drama of the kind of Kim Williams short leadership become a a caretaker role from Julian Clark as a CEO for a couple of years and then Michael Miller come back to the organization he'd he'd briefly gone away to run APN News and Media and then a kind of steadying of the ship not not just under him but one or two other kind of key sort of executives on the commercial side who, who just reworked the model to the extent that they 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 dragged the newspapers, certainly in normal years, back into something approaching profitability. Lachlan Murdoch is someone who you write about a bit in the book. And he, as you said before, was on the outer uh, and now looks like he's in pole position. What do you think that we can look at from what he did in the Australian media market over the last decade and what do you think that tells him about uh, tells us about how he might be as a leader going forward yeah Lachlan is 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 a fascinating character because of course you know if you were to look back at even even further back he had the sort of um debacle of one tell the big telco investment which which burned through hundreds of millions of dollars and again that was a a joint investment with 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 James Packer where you know if you weren't a Murdoch that would probably be the end of your media career but um but you know he 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 absolutely proved that he got some media savvy just with the the investment in Nova Entertainment, you know, that that has become a very profitable radio network of which, you know, there can't be anyone but 
but but but Lachlan and the people that he appointed um, who deserve the credit for that. You know, it's absolutely them. Um, but at the same time, you know, ten and the investment in ten was a was a real misjudgment in the way that he let that one slip through his through his fingers, and it cost him a lot of money at the same time. Um, so so I suppose what we see there is is a willingness to make a few moves. You know, and he's done it in the past within News Corp as well. So, again, he was the one who led a very savvy uh, investment in REA, um, the the real estate group, very early on, mm. which in the end became probably as important as anything to the future of News Corp as it stands now. So, if you look at, um, you know, if you look at the sort of the the, the profitability of of, of um, News Corp as an organisation globally, the biggest single contributor is the digital real estate services now. So um, that is, uh, a, a, you know, an, an, another place where perhaps he deserves a bit more credit than than he's necessarily been given. Um, but I suppose the other thing to be careful around sort of Lachlan is, is this assumption that he's the natural successor because, you know, he's, he's the, 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 the sibling who's, there within the organization because there there is this sort of complicated family trust within the Murdoch family which which decides the leadership at the moment so Rupert has four votes and then the four adult children so Lachlan James Elizabeth and Prudence have the other four votes but um but when Rupert's not on the scene anymore his four votes vanish um so you then have Lachlan I think most people see as broadly sharing his father's politics, but the other three siblings, not necessarily. So just because he might at that point be sitting at the helm of the organization in the end, the voting shareholders decide not, not the CEO. So there, there may yet be some quite big questions when succession time comes along. So let's ask about succession then in just a moment because you've you've kind of given that uh, you know that into us is is Lachlan based on any particular character in that is you know how realistic do you think a show like that is compared to your understanding of the way the family works? Hey, look, I, th- I think in terms of the incidents and the dynamics, succession is. I mean, a what what an absolutely brilliant show mm. it is, but it it it, it, it draws <laughs> it, it draws on so many kind of incidents and moments incredibly well and you you know you you know you see one of the one of the siblings in trying to invest in kind of uh record mm-hmm. labels and that sort of thing of course you know james had done earlier in his career um you see you know members of the family being on the outer and then back inside i i suppose the one the one thing is you know i you know i've only briefly met James a handful of times, um, Lachlan just the once, they are actually incredibly polite to the little people. So that's the one, <laughs> I suppose, disappointing thing compared to the kind of the, you know, the the, the kind of incredibly arrogant arseholes of succession is they've been very well brought up by their, I, I suspect, by their mother in particular. Um, so it doesn't make for great script writing does it but they you know they that that's probably the one thing i i suspect in personality types there isn't an awful lot to uh, to compare between the two oh you never know maybe they're a bit different behind closed doors um tim i think probably final question is i want you to look into your crystal ball and 
I know people hate doing this, but we love to put people on the spot. What do you think a post-Rupert News Corp looks like in five years? Well, I think the first thing is uh, to challenge on that assumption is that Rupert yeah, won't be around in five years because, of course, you know, oh, he, I, I, although it's not true. that long ago since he celebrated his 90th birthday, you know, his mother was still going strong, you know, um, well into being a centenarian. Um, but I think at some point the big question I think will be whether the organization holds together as one organization, you know, let's, let's remember about eight years ago, the company split when 21st century Fox and news Corp became two separate organizations. And then of course, 21st century Fox split again with most of its assets ending up with, with Disney and Rupert Murdoch as the, one of the biggest shareholders in Disney whilst also creating Fox corporation as well. So I, I, I suspect that, you know, one of the answers would be further splits. You know, we we already see the rumblings about Foxtel, which is which News Corp owns two thirds of, perhaps you know floating on the stock exchange in its own right. Um, you might well see the Fox News assets in the in in the US go in one direction and the the newspapers in another. So so I suppose the the thing that would most surprise me in five years' time would be if the structure of News Corp as it stands now is the same. I think much more likely it will be different. All right. Tim, I think that's everything. Thank you so much for your time. Great Not insights. at all. An absolute pleasure. Um, and, and it was a real pleasure. Yeah. And I, and I, like I said before, I highly recommend uh, subscribing to the newsletter. I haven't had a chance to read the full book yet, but I, I, I've got to get it on my Kindle. It does. And I've listened to some of the audio. Um, we have a very lovely speaking voice, by the way, <laughs> and your audio book is very entertaining. Oh, you are very, you are very kind. That was Tim Burrows, founder of Mumbrella, author of Media Unmade, Australia's most disruptive decade. Uh, he also runs a media newsletter, which is Unmade. You can, you can subscribe to that for free at unmade.media. It's really worth listening to. That is it for us this week. Thank you all for listening, as always. It's been great. If you haven't already subscribed, please do. Also, if you can, you know, we would love to get some reviews on there so that anyone who's clicked on it and is like, I don't know if I want to listen to this, you can put in a good word for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere. And a, a reminder that you can join our podcast group on Facebook at, uh, it, it's called Murdocracy Podcast. Uh, there's a nice little community there. We share stuff throughout the week. It's, you know, fun to keep the conversation going. And just a reminder, our Patreon is Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Murdocracy, M-U-R-D-O-C-R-A-C-Y. Thank you to Natalie Sekolovska, our producer, Kevin McLeod for the theme music, the ABC for the recordings from the archive that's in that, Ruby Innes for our artwork, and of course, as always, thank you to you, Sammy. Thank you very much, Cam. Bye. Bye.